Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the History of England, episode 172, A Royal Marriage. Before I pile ahead, some notices for you. Remember to check out the Agora Podcast Network and the associated website, intriguingly named agorapodcastnetwork.com. And now do check out this month's featured Agora podcast, which is the wonderful Tom Daly, American Biography. I think you'll like the podcast because it's about the history of a country through its people, about the lives of the people who shaped it, and not necessarily the ones you'd always expect. So give it a go. You can find it on iTunes, American Biography, or the website, AmericanBiographies, all one word, .webs.com. And there's a link on my website to boot. Last time, I did my normal trick, though you may not have realised it, and failed to get as far as I'd intended to get. Verbal diarrhoea was the inelegant phrase they used to get banded about in our family when I was a lad in connection with my inability to use one word where 50 would do. There seems no prospect of that changing, sadly. So, we were in 1462, and Margaret and King Louis's mum have twisted Louis's arm into helping the Lancastrian cause, enticed by the prize of Calais. Louis pretty quickly realised that he'd boobed, actually. I believe I have mentioned that at this stage, Calais is surrounded by the lands belonging not to the French king, but to Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy. Now, Louis and Philip were old pals. When Louis was heir to the French throne rather than king, he'd fled to Burgundy during a spat with Louis's father. When Louis eagerly went to his old mentor, the ageing Duke, to ask for permission to pass through with an army, the good Duke sent his emissaries away with a flea in their collective ear. Warwick was his pal. Burgundy favoured the Yorkists, so no way Jose. So from then on, Louis's support for Margaret became lukewarm at best. All of which meant that when Margaret landed at Bamborough in October 1462 and met with King Henry, or ex-King Henry, and Somerset on the northeast coast of England, she had an army of but 800 men. Not enough to blow the skin off a bowl of porridge, let alone capture some of the most powerful fortresses in England. Though actually, you try and blow the skin off a bowl of porridge, it's no mean feat, let me tell you. But as soon as they appeared before Bamborough, the northeast once again showed where its loyalties lay. Annick, Bamborough, Dunstanborough castles all opened their gates and welcomed her in. Ralph Percy, newly converted to the Yorkist cause, was the very first to open the gates at Dunstanborough. Warwick and Edward pushed the panic button, sending writs out to summon the entire nobility of England plus levies. Edward marched north to meet with Warwick, though ended his journey at Durham in bed with measles, and hopefully with a bunch of grapes and a good book. And so it was left to Warwick to do the dirty work. It was, however, enough for Margaret and Henry. 
For all her determination and tenacity, Margaret has something of a history of bottling it at the key moment. Think of her turning aside from London, for example. Maybe that's a bit harsh, given Warwick was approaching with 7,000 men, but she did have the walls of three mighty castles to hide behind, two of which were on the coast, and therefore with a handy escape route should the support not come in. But anyway, Margaret and Henry rode for Bamborough and a ship out of there, leaving Somerset to hold the castle as well as he could. Things didn't come easy now for Margaret. Her ship, with all her treasure, was caught in a storm. She had to abandon the ship and was rescued by a fisherman who took her to the Scots at Berwick. The French soldiers who had been with her were not so lucky. Washed up on Lindisfarne Island, they were soon captured. By Christmas 1462, the defenders of Dunstanborough were reduced to eating their horses and could hold out no longer and were forced to sue for terms. Now, at this point, you get this most remarkable deal, seriously potty. As we mentioned last time, Edward knew that he had to balance ruthlessness with forgiveness if he was to build a regime with widespread support. But at Dunstanborough, the collective wisdom is that Edward blew it big time. Edward welcomed Ralph Percy and Somerset with open arms. Come to my arms, my beamish boys, O frabjous day, calucale, he chortled in his joy. Somerset and Percy actually joined Edward with their vorpal blades in besieging Annick. Now, Ralph Percy. Father killed by Yorkist, brother killed by Yorkist, nephew held in the tower by Yorkist, was allowed not just to have command of the three fortresses in the north, but able to accept rebels back into the king's favour on his own authority, a remarkable level of authority even for the most trusted of servants. I can just see Warwick's face when he heard the news. I can imagine he did some whiffling through Tolgy Woods and more than his fair share of burbling to boot. But with Somerset, Edward took the biscuit. I mean, we understand what he was trying to do, trying to prove that these factions could be reconciled and work together. So Edward treated the 28-year-old with amazing affection and eagerness. Remember, this is a man who saw his father hacked to death in the streets of St Albans and ever since has fought for the Lancaster cause. Here's how a chronicler reported the affair. And the king made full much of him, insomuch he lodged with the king in his own bed many nights, and sometimes rode a-hunting behind the king, the king having about him not passing six horse at the most, and yet three were of the duke's men of Somerset. Within six months, Somerset's attainder had been reversed and his estates restored, and the king had put on a great tournament in his honour, and he was to serve as commander alongside Warwick. There was outrage all around. When riding through Northampton with the king, Somerset was set upon by the locals and it took the king to save him from being torn to pieces. But hey, this was how the new king saw the way forward. I suspect Lady Macbeth might have been muttering dark things about the milk of human kindness and that sort of thing, but who am I to criticise? Maybe it'll all work out for the best. But I wouldn't hold your breath. In March 1463... All the Nevilles were gathered at Fotheringhay Castle to remember and rebury their dead. But their gathering was disturbed by more news from the north, of further rebellion. Unbelievably, it was Ralph Percy again who had opened the doors to a force of Scots and Frenchmen. By June 1463, Mary of Gilders, Margaret and Henry, invaded Northumberland, had laid siege to Norham Castle, and the northeast was once again in flames. 
Once again, it was Warwick and his brother Montague who responded, and before long, the siege of Norham Castle had been raised. But that wasn't the end of this particular rebellion. Henry stayed in Scotland, but Margaret and the young prince went to Berwick to direct operations from there. And then, equally unbelievably, Somerset turned his coat again. In November 1463, he rode to Northumberland, where Henry had now rejoined the Queen. He almost didn't make it. He was recognised in Durham and had to escape in his shirt. But in his wake, the most serious wave of disaffection and revolt spread, in North Wales, where he'd been based, for example. But also in Gloucestershire, King Edward had to carry out a legal procession. He had to do so in the southeast counties, and in Yorkshire, the Cliffords again declared for Lancaster. Edward comes in for a bit of flack in the way he'd dealt with all this. He'd asked Parliament and the clergy for some cash to invade Scotland and had been given it and then didn't invade Scotland. Despite setting out for the north and indeed Wales a couple of times, he never made it there and left his lieutenants to deal with it all. In fact, Edward was entirely justified. His lieutenants did an excellent job and men like Warwick, Montague and Herbert were to be relied on. And Edward himself focused with Warwick on defeating the House of Lancaster through diplomacy as much as open war. In this regard, the first step was France. In 1463, a truce was signed with King Louis. Louis could see he'd backed the wrong horse. Despite the revolt in Northumberland, the local gentry weren't joining Margaret. Their success was based purely on a limited number of Lancastrian barons. Sir Louis renounced all aid to Henry and even withdrew the traditional protection for the Scots. This in turn pulled the rug from under the feet of the Bishop Kennedy of St Andrews and the Scots scuttled to the negotiating table and as a result a truce with England and Scotland was signed as well. So Margaret, Henry, Somerset and Percy were now isolated and officially on their own. It was in fact Montague more than Warwick who blew out the candle of this particular revolt. At Hedgeley Moor in 1464, 5,000 Lancastrians under Somerset and Percy blocked Montague's army. It turned out not to be a competitive contest. Somerset's left wing ran away before the fight began. His centre and right ran away as soon as the fight began. Ralph Percy stayed. After his treachery, he guessed his future would entail hiding under chicken coops until one day his luck ran out and he was forced to watch a fry-up of his own guts. So he fought to the death, and is supposed to have said as he died, I have saved the bird in my bosom. We assume the bird was his loyalty to the cause of Lancaster. But actually, the bird was looking a little sickly. Somerset managed to regroup, and in May the same year, a further battle was joined between Montague and Somerset. Once again, Somerset's army ran away, which I'm told is considered poor form in military circles, but I'm no expert. The 1463-64 rebellion had in a sense been the most serious of them all, but it was now over, and was an utterly clear indication that the cause of Lancaster was finished, barring something extraordinary. The more ordinary folk of England, from gentry and gentlemen and yeomen and peasant, had no interest anymore in the matherings of a few magnates. Edward was now king. Jolly nice he looked too in his tights. Montague and Warwick had a clear policy towards the king and his clemency. Get the heads of any rebels disconnected from their bodies as quickly as you can before Edward comes around trying to give them the kiss of peace. 
and the aftermath of Hedgley, Moore and Hexham was carnage, nobility-wise. Somerset and four others were beheaded on the battlefield that very day. Lord Roos was captured in a wood a couple of days later and beheaded in Newcastle. The same nasty mishap was visited on Lord Hungerford and William Torboys was found hiding in a coal pit with Henry's treasure of 2,000 quid. Seven more heads changed hands at Warwick's castle of Middleham and about 14 more went to York to face a chap called John Tiptoft, Earl of Worcester. I've always thought nicknames were rather fun. I've acquired a couple in my life. John Tiptoff is described as a humanist and administrator. He also acquired a nickname of the Butcher of England. So he was clearly a man of varied tastes. Just as an aside, he clearly was an erudite and well-travelled man with well-documented journeys through Italy and to the Holy Land. He kept a large library, part of which he donated to Oxford University and part of the process of the Italian Renaissance filtering back to England from Italy comes from him and people like him. However, he also had a taste for cruelty. The rebels at York were executed under his role as Constable of England. Later in his career, he carried out executions of rebels where, after he'd done the normal hanging, drawing, quartering, beheading, so on and so forth, he then had the body impaled on a sharp stake. Tiptoft went to the Tower for execution himself in 1470. His execution was something of a sellout, so bad was his reputation. Tiptoft, in fact, asked the axeman to take three blows to behead him, in honour of the Holy Spirit. Seriously, three blows. The most fanatical of modern religious fanatics would find it difficult to compete with the Middle Ages. Almost there, then. Henry VI escaped Hexham, and he separated at this point from his wife and son. He led a life of secrecy, flitting from house to house and hiding place to hiding place for all the world like Bonnie Prince Charlie. But in 1465 he was betrayed by a Benedictine monk. Thomas Talbot came to arrest him while he was having supper and catching wind of it, Henry legged it out the back door but was caught on stepping stones trying to cross a river. How the mighty have fallen. Henry was taken to London on a horse with his feet tied to his stirrups and incarcerated in the tower. I suspect it was more to his liking than war in the Northumberland, to be honest. You might wonder why Henry wasn't quietly murdered, like Richard or Edward II, and you might give Edward IV some credit for this as being a nice guy. Much as I like Edward IV, I wouldn't. The truth is, there was absolutely no point in killing Henry while his son was alive. Better to have him alive than the opposition able to get behind the rights of a blameless son. Margaret and Prince Edward fled initially to Scotland, where they were moneyless and friendless, a horrible embarrassment to a Scottish government that had just struck a deal with Edward. There's a story she had to ask a Scottish archer to borrow a groat for an offering in church. The archer conformed to the most unfair national stereotypes by pulling out the coin, quote, somewhat stiffly and regretfully. Margaret and Prince Edward really had nowhere to go. Louis had also struck his deal with England and Burgundy had been relentlessly antagonistic towards Margaret and Henry. But Margaret had to leave and so she arrived at Sloys on August the 14th in the Duke of Burgundy's territory. By this stage all she had with her was the Duke of Exeter and seven attendants and she was without doubt on her uppers. One French chronicler claimed to have seen Exeter barefoot begging from door to door. Another, Castellan, 
described her situation, and you can't help feel there's more than a little tiny hint of schadenfreude. Here we go. Poor and alone, destitute of goods, and all desolate. She had neither credence, nor money, nor goods, nor jewels to pledge. She had her son, no royal robes or estate, and her person without adornment befitting a queen. She had no more than seven women for her retinue, whose apparel was like that of her mistress, formerly one of the most splendid women in the world, now one of the poorest. By sheer force of will, Margaret compelled Duke Philip of Burgundy to see her. Repeatedly he refused, but when she sent word that, quote, were my cousin of Burgundy to go to the end of the world, I would follow him. He then finally gave way. As it happens, Margaret was forced to flee from English soldiers from Calais, disguising herself as a peasant woman in a farm cart, and eventually she met with the Duke. But it did her no good. He treated her with respect, gave her a little money, but would not give the support she needed. Margaret was forced to retreat to her father's castle near Nancy in eastern France, and there she set up her impoverished household. Over the next few years she pleaded with all the rulers of France, Burgundy, Brittany, Germany and Portugal. She refused to give up. At one point, one of her messengers was captured in England and tortured, quote, by burning in the feet until he confessed many things. But the truth was that things would need to change dramatically for her and her son to have a realistic chance of regaining the throne. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. By 1464, then, Edward was secure on his throne. He had delivered some solid successes in at least quelling the worst of the magnate violence, though making the creaky system of medieval justice work would be beyond him, as it had been beyond every English monarch since Henry II. He'd had some notable diplomatic successes, though Warwick might claim much of the credit for that. He and Warwick, to all intents and purposes, appeared to be of one mind. Warwick himself felt pretty comfortable that his protégé was right where he wanted him to be. The impression given by continental observers was that it was Warwick who really drove the bus. Actually, it's unlikely that Edward and Warwick themselves ever quite felt like that. Edward was clearly no cipher. He'd won his own victories, made his own decisions, held court, was wildly popular with his public, particularly in London. He'd formed an effective government and council of state, Edward chose very effective men to be around him, none closer than William Hastings. But it's very likely that Warwick felt that Edward would follow his lead, would treat him as the senior partner. The big question in Warwick's mind, then, was the diplomatic one. At some point, England probably had to stop running with the hare and hunting with the hound. A decision had to be made between France and Burgundy, or at very least, an accord with France had to be reached if at all possible, without alienating Burgundy. The options were finely balanced. An alliance with Burgundy gave great advantages in terms of trade, in particular with the traditional importance of the Low Countries. 
But alliance with France was very tempting indeed. Alliance with France would finally close off the Lancastrian hopes and would have some trade advantages too. There were even options to be considered about an agreement with Castile in Spain. Warwick had a running secret correspondence with King Louis, who clearly felt that in talking to Warwick, he was speaking to the king. Warwick and his pal John Wenlock were slowly stitching up a deal to make peace with France, and this came to be Warwick's option. Now, you all know that the perfect way to seal a deal in the days medieval was, yes, OK, piece of parchment, but marriage. That was the thing. And here Warwick had the perfect counter to play with. Edward was surely the most eligible bachelor in all Europe. Plus, of course, Edward needed to do his duty and get himself an heir. All this playing around was fine, no problem keeping doing that, but you must have a wife as well. By September 1464, Warwick felt he'd pretty much got it all worked out. There was a tentative offer on the table from Isabella of Castile, but the prize he was able to take proudly back to Edward after a series of negotiations all conducted with the full knowledge and encouragement of Edward himself, was Bonner of Savoy, the King of France's sister-in-law. This would seal an alliance with France that would put paid to the Lancastrian threat forever. Warwick was congratulating himself on once again being the greatest man in the realm, richest, most magnificent, most trusted, also the greediest, it had to be said, and there was that incident with killing the horse before Towton, which had been a bit embarrassing. But never mind, that he, Warwick, was acknowledged by all to be the man. In September 1464, a great council was arranged. As Warwick rode to the meeting, he would have been confident that all that was needed was the king's sign-off on the deal. After all, Edward had encouraged all the negotiations and seemed to be in tune. The plan was for an informal meeting of the more intimate members of the council, Archbishop Bourchier, Warwick, Hastings, George Neville and the other great officers of state, that kind of thing. Then the following day, when all the baronage assembled at Reading Abbey, there'd be the normal grand procession into the hall of Edward and his most trusted advisers. So there they all were, Warwick no doubt feeling comfortable and in control. The debate wasn't quite going the way that Warwick wanted, but nothing he couldn't handle. There were questions raised over the reliability of Louis, and they were good questions. Louis would prove to be no pushover, and although peace with England was without doubt one of his collectibles, his real intention was to keep England as weak as possible as he worked his reforms and changes in France, sought to re-establish the power of the French throne over Burgundy and indeed in the Mediterranean. But never mind, sure enough, the argument all went Warwick's way. Then the question of marriage came up. The question was asked whom Edward preferred to marry, and the point was made that he needed to get on with it. Edward was being all bonhomie and pleasantry, and his words are recorded as, Perchance our choice may not to be the liking of everyone present. Nevertheless, we will do as it likes us. Oh, hello, thought the council, and sat up a little straighter. Maybe the old sideways glance at Warwick. Now, for reasons that will become clear, Edward was probably more than a little embarrassed at this point. So the 22-year-old gave them all a waggish grin and jauntily told them that his choice was Lady Elizabeth Woodville, daughter of Richard Woodville, Lord Rivers. Ooh, hello, thought the council. 
Warwick might possibly had entertained a brief moment of panic and thought about killing a horse, drawing his sword and refusing to move, which is what he liked to do when he panicked. But no, he thought, now this is not the time to panic. The lad's probably just pulling our collective leg. I mean, who'd be daft enough to marry a widow from some minor Lancastrian lord when Bona of Savoy and a French alliance is on the table? Besides which, he'd have told us by now. As it happens, it was Archbishop Borchet who took up the battle. As diplomatically as possible, he accepted that the Lady Elizabeth was no doubt a virtuous and beautiful person, but she was way below Edward in station. Certainly not premiership material, and no more than championship, and some might suggest conference league. He might also be thinking that no King of England since Billy the Conk had married an Englishwoman. Edward was now red-faced. When the Archbishop finally stopped, he replied that he would have her and no other. Oh, and hadn't he mentioned he'd actually married her already? Sorry, sorry, should have mentioned that. At this point, Warwick realised he'd been wrong. In the words of Woody, not only was there a snake in his boots, this was also, without a shadow of a doubt, the perfect time to panic. He looked about for a horse to kill. Joking aside, Warwick would have been absolutely livid. The Woodvilles, for crying out loud, the same Woodvilles that he and Edward had mocked mercilessly all that time ago when they'd captured him and thrown him into the clink at Calais and called him a parvenu. Warwick had been made to look an absolute monkey. All that stuff about him being the real ruler of England lay in ruins around his feet. Louis was expected to meet him in a month or so at Saint-Omer in France to tie up the loose ends and confirm the marriage to Bona. What was he to do now? What now were the prospects for the French alliance? But what will have hurt almost as much was the sure and certain knowledge that Edward had gone his own way without consulting him, Warwick which brought to his mind a truce agreed a couple of months back with Brittany, which again had been done without Warwick's knowledge, by Edward. And suddenly the awful prospect appeared in Warwick's mind. Maybe this 22-year-old was not quite the admiring, docile and respectful puppet he had assumed. Just maybe this lad had a mind of his own. The story of Elizabeth Woodville and Edward IV has, even to my mind, more attuned as it is to worrying about electricity bills, mortgages and pension schemes than romance, all the potential for a cracking good romantic novel. In fact, I believe a few may already have been written. Or is that a couple of billion? Somewhere in between, probably. So, let me take you back. Elizabeth Woodville was, as we've just said, the daughter of Richard Woodville, and as I've been at Plains to stress... Woodville was minor league stuff. Even so, he'd punched above his weight with his marriage to Jacquetta, widow of the mighty Duke of Bedford. But nonetheless, minor league. Woodville has been described as a lusty knight, and the evidence is there that the lusty description applies to his wife to boot, given that five sons and six daughters from the marriage made it to maturity. Lusty and knackered may be an apt description. Elizabeth was the eldest, probably born 1437, and so about 27-28 when Edward dropped his bombshell. She'd been married before. She married at the age of 19 in 1456 to Sir John Garay of Gruby and had produced two sons from that marriage, Thomas and Richard, both of whom, of course, are nubbut nippers at this point in time. Sir John Grey croaked, unfortunately, early in 1461 and this gave Elizabeth something of a problem. 
because her marriage portion had been only a poxy 200 marks anyway, and now her ex-husband's family were claiming it. So Elizabeth was embroiled in a court case to claim what was hers. This, by the way, is not the romantic bit, just in case you're wondering. I'll tell you when we get to that bit. Elizabeth had appealed to a distant relative of hers, William Hastings, who agreed to help petition the king. And now I'll warble a bit more about William Hastings, since he's already probably, in fact, closer to the king than even Warwick, and probably should be described as his closest friend. Hastings would leave behind him a reputation for loyalty and uprightness. Described by Thomas More as an honourable man, a good knight, and a gentle, loving man, and passing well-beloved. Hastings was the king's chamberlain, which gave him constant and direct access to the king. Dominic Mancini, an Italian who visited England in 1482-3 and wrote about Richard III, described Hastings as the author of the sovereign's policy and the accomplice and partner of his privy pleasures. Why is everybody French? His influence gave him enormous personal power. Folks signed up to be part of Hastings' affinity for no indentured payment, just because of his influence. King Louis of France and Duke Philip of Burgundy paid him pensions to keep him sweet. While his lands grew as Edward's reign went on, this wide and deep affinity already meant that by the time of Towton he was able to bring 3,000 men to Edward's army. Hastings appeared to have few enemies, a remarkable achievement in 15th century England. Actually, only the new queen and the Woodvilles seemed to have a problem with him, and that had more to do with his influence over the king than any other matter. And then to crown it all, he was a Midlander, born in Leicestershire, and there can be no finer start in life than that. Anyway, that's all very well, but Mr Nicey-Nicey or not, he drove a hard bargain with the newly widowed Elizabeth Woodville. Yes, he would help, but Elizabeth was forced to sign an agreement that her son Thomas would marry Hastings' daughter, and while they were minors, he'd have half the income from an inheritance Elizabeth was due to come into. But despite the hard bargaining in April 1464, this deal was apparently struck. So, now on to the romantic bit. Hold your hats, everyone. Let me take you back to April 1464, six months ago, and Edward is on his way north to face off the latest Lancastrian threat in the northeast. On his way, he decides to take a break and go hunting in Whittlebury Forest. As Edward rode by, all tall and young and manly and all that sort of thing, he noticed a large oak tree, and underneath the oak was a noblewoman and her two little boys. She was a fair-skinned woman with dark eyes and auburn hair and a fashionably high forehead. Foreheads were big in the Middle Ages, by the way, hence why nuns wear wimples that cover their foreheads to prevent them from provoking any naughty thoughts. Anyway, on with the romance. This was Elizabeth, come to catch the king's eye to plead with him to help her petition. The 16th century historian Edward Hall describes the impact on the king Elizabeth, wrote Hall, found such grace in the king's eyes that he not only favoured her suit, but much more fantasised her person, for she was a woman of such beauty and favour that with her sober demeanour, lovely looking and feminine smiling, neither too wanton nor too humble, beside her tongue so eloquent and her wit so pregnant, she allured and made subject to her heart of so great a king. 
Now, River's pad was not a million miles away, and so Edward went to stay. Edward's first objective appears to have been, romantically, to get Elizabeth into bed, flattering and bribing her into becoming his sovereign lady, otherwise known as mistress. Elizabeth, though, was having none of it. She answered, and I quote, As she was unfitted for his honour to be his wife, then for her own honesty she was too good to be his concubine. Wise words, Liz. According to Hall, the result was a hot burning fire. We assume this means something psychological and physiological rather than anything to do with the household arrangements. And true enough, Edward drew his dagger and he held it to Elizabeth's throat, which is a common technique on butcher gate in Carlisle on a Saturday night, along with a romantic compliment, you don't sweat much for a fat lass. Elizabeth resisted the temptation to kill a horse and start swinging a sword around, kept her cool, and replied that she would rather die than live unchastely with the king. And Edward was hooked. He'd found his queen and would have no other. Keeping their plans secret, Edward was a frequent visitor and left the business of saving his kingdom from the Lancastrians to the Nevilles. And on the 1st of May, 1464, they were married in total secrecy. According to Robert Fabian, at which marriage no one was present but the spouse, the spousess, the Duchess of Bedford, her mother, the priest, two gentlewomen and a young man to help the priest sing. Now, before we all rush off and go and have a cold shower and cool down, I should note that there are more holes in the story than a piece of gorgonzola, and sorting the tosh from the fact is impossible. Though, I should note that much of the story was very much contemporary, written down from 1468, and that while I'll do my best in the next episode to construct rhyme and reason about Edward's decision, hate it or loathe it, everyone agreed, from the highest to the man on the Clapham farm cart, that Edward basically married for love, married on impulse. Not something kings are supposed to do, but presumably not the first or indeed the last time that a 22-year-old will do it. So there we go. Back briefly to Reading then in September 1464. The day following the horrendous council meeting, the great council met in Reading Abbey. It was Warwick, smiling as well as he knew how, that led Elizabeth Woodville into the abbey to be presented to the assembled lords of the land, doing his best to look happy and in tune with his boss. Oh, it's all perfectly normal. I don't know what the fuss is all about. Yes, is Elizabeth fantastic? I know he didn't tell us, but that's fine, isn't it? No, it's all wonderful, all lovely, no problem. Everything's fine. But there will be consequences, ladies and gentlemen. There will be consequences. But we'll talk about those next time. For the moment, I have some donators to thank. My thanks to my warm and fluffy monthly donators, Cathy, this week. Then many thanks to Rebecca and Bernadette. You are very kind. And then thanks to everyone who's commented on the website, Facebook, iTunes and all that sort of thing. To all of you who listen in. Good luck, everyone, and have a great couple of weeks. Because as it happens, next weekend is my birthday, so I'm having a week off. But we will be back with the Anglo-Saxon England podcast on the 6th of March. 